God, you created all things and you know all things and all things are held together uh, in and through you alone. And so, God, we give you glory this morning. God, we thank you that you are not only glorious, you are also gracious to us. And so we worship you this morning. I pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Welcome. If you have a Bible, open with me to John chapter 20. John 20. So we are beginning a new series uh, today that, that we'll spend, God willing, the next uh, four or so weeks in. The series we've called For the Neighborhoods and the Nations. We'll be discussing over the next few weeks, we'll be discussing our call as Christians uh, to know the gospel, to share the gospel, to live our lives on purpose for the gospel. Um, and we'll also be discussing um, what, it, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to what it, what it means to disciple others, what it means to be discipled ourselves, and, and, and hopefully we'll get really practical in terms of how are we then to share the gospel with others. What is this story that we're sharing? So, so hopefully you guys will stick around for the next several weeks, really looking forward to it. And this is an opportunity, I think, <coughs> for, for we as an individuals and for we as a community to ask ourselves those hard questions about what, is it, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean for us to, to live this life with the vision uh, and the commandment, the commission that God has sent us out with? So those are, it's easy to be lulled asleep by the entertainment of this world or by the suffering of this world or by just the uh, typical monotonous rhythms that many of us find ourselves in. And so hopefully for many of us, this will be a little bit of a wake up. Um, and think, oh yeah, God has made us, God has made us for a purpose, and God is calling us to something very powerful. And the good news is, he's not left us alone. He is present with us, and he goes with us. So let's read the scriptures together. I'm going to read from John chapter 20. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He is there, he's appearing to, to his disciples. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So this is after his crucifixion. It says, Jesus then came and stood among them and said to his disciples, peace be with you. This was his first message to them as he appears. Peace be with you, Jesus says. And when he had said this, he showed them his, his hands and his side. Uh, and then the disciples were glad when they saw that it was the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you know us and you know exactly what we need to hear. And God, we need to hear peace. And so God, speak to us this morning. God, I pray um, for the Christians here, God, that we would be uh, prayerful and we would be motivated and that we would be loving to, um, to those around us who are non-Christians and that we would be faithful to share the good news with them, to love and care and to, and to give ourselves um, for your glory and for their sake in response to the gospel. God, I pray for, uh, for those who are here this morning who may not believe, who may be struggling, who may be asking hard questions, um, who, or who maybe have dismissed this already altogether. Um, God, I pray that they would continue to ask those questions of of why they were created, who made them, what is their purpose, what is, uh, is there any meaning in suffering, is there any hope for the future, is there an eternity? God, I pray that they would press into those questions, uh, and God, as you promise, as we, as we seek truth, God, we will find it, and we will find you. 
And so, God, we thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I was going to say, too, uh, I know many of you guys know uh, Chris Jank, who led worship this morning, been a friend of ours for a while. He shared portions of his story a time or two, um, but we're just going to give you just kind of a reminder, you know, about, uh, and I asked Chris if I could share this, um, was it maybe about three, three years ago he found himself uh, in a courtroom with felony charges for uh, drug possession and, and several other uh, nefarious uh, charges. Um, and by God's grace, he grew up as a he, he grew up as an agnostic, as an atheist. Uh, through that godless vision of the world, it got into drugs uh, and alcohol and many other things. Just sort of lost himself in addiction. Was finally arrested about three years ago uh, and was sitting in court and with a prison sentence waiting in front of him. Uh, and and by the mercy of God. The judge was but the chairman of the deacons at the Baptist church in town and allowed him to uh, basically give, gave him the choice to say, okay, do you want prison or do you want uh, this Christian uh, recovery program called Teen Challenge? And, and he says, yes, please, uh, I'll do that. And as an atheist, as uh, an addict, at sort of the bottom in some ways, was brought into this program and uh, came to faith. And God spoke to him and changed him and softened his heart. He said that, he was telling me this morning, he, uh, he met a pastor there who said, um, he knew he was an atheist. He said, why don't you, tell me, tell me why you believe what you believe. Why do you believe that there's no God? And, and, and Chris wrote this lengthy art, and if you know Chris, this is fitting, because um, he's, a, he's a thinker and a philosopher and a, uh, has become quite the theologian. He wrote this long letter to this pastor saying, here's why I think Christianity is foolish. Here's why I don't believe. And then this other pastor who was ministering to those guys got a hold of that letter and asked to meet with Chris and just began dismantling all of Chris's arguments. Uh, and, and God really in his grace took him from a place of, of pride and arrogance in his idolatry um, to a place of humility to worship him and as uh, came to faith and converted is now uh, obviously leading worship for us this morning. So I just think it's important for us to under, yeah, let's give that guy a hand. There really is something to this, you know? There really is something to this. There is power from the Lord to change people. To take what uh, would be just a, a terrible mess of a life and to redeem it in such a powerful way that not only for him and for his sake and for eternity, uh, but for the sake of the gospel for all of us and this city and beyond. So just very thankful for you, brother, for leading um, and, and thankful for your story. And, and I know many of you have, have shared your story of uh, great transformation in that same way. So just very thankful for what the Lord is doing. So as we come to this question about, um, you know, for, for the neighborhoods and the nations, we talk about the gospel. What are we talking about when we talk about the gospel? I, I was a church kid. I grew up in church my whole life. And you hear that word a lot, you know, the gospel. Um, and in some ways, at least for me, it kind of lost its meaning. And I'm trying to uh, get back for us, like, what are we really talking about when we talk about the gospel? Because that's important. It's the most important. And, and as many of you know, that the gospel means literally what? Good news. 
good news. That's what the word gospel means. And that's important for us to understand that the gospel is good news um, because it's easy for us to confuse the gospel with many things which are not the gospel, right? Tim Keller famously uh, put it this way, the gospel is good news, not good advice. And that's important, right? That's important for us to know as a church because the gospel is not advice about what we are supposed to do. The gospel is the good news about what Jesus has already done for us. D.A. Carson uh, wrote this, Because the gospel is news, because the gospel is good news, then it must be announced. That's what you do with news. He says the core message, <coughs> the core message of the gospel, it's not a code of ethics to be debated. It's not a list of aphorisms to be admired or pondered. It's not even a systematic theology that's supposed to be outlined. Though it does properly ground all ethics and all aphorisms, uh, all, all systematics, all theologies, it is none of these three alone. It is, by definition, news. It's something that's happened. It's something that we are to proclaim. It is something, therefore, that must be announced. And that news, that good news of the gospel, is very simply this. that It is the story of how Jesus has accomplished our salvation. It's not what we're supposed to do to accomplish our own salvation. It's the news about what Jesus has done already to save us from Satan, sin, and death. Satan seeks to destroy us. Sin will destroy us. Death will be our ultimate destruction apart from God's grace. And the good news is that Jesus offers us a way out. He saved us. And this narrative of the gospel doesn't just begin uh, 2,000 years ago with the birth of the Messiah. It begins from the very first pages of Scripture. If you know your Bible, the, the first book of the Bible is the book of Genesis. Genesis, Genesis literally means the book of beginnings. And in the scriptures, we read that the story of God begins with God creating the universe, creating everything that we know, including the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And God said that they were very good. When God created the world, everything was as it should be. And yet in Genesis 3, it doesn't take long. We read the story of Adam and Eve's sin and disobedience. You may remember the story, God put them in the garden, he literally put them in paradise, and he says, all of this is for you. He walked with them in the cool of the day, he was present with them, he, he put them in paradise, and he just says this one thing, don't eat from this tree. He knew their hearts, and he says, I know, I know, that, you, you, I know that you have this thing, you, you want to be like God. You want to be like me, but you're not me. Don't eat from this tree. And of course... They do just what any of us would have done. They did the one thing that they were told not to do, and they ate from this tree. And Scripture says their eyes were open, but now they were exposed to death. They'd rebelled against God. They had, in trying to be their own God, and trying to be sovereign of their own life, and trying to think that they could actually know everything themselves, they disobeyed God. They condemned themselves, and they ate from the tree. And ever since then, every man woman and child has wanted to do the things that God says don't do. And God says don't do these things because he loves us. He cares for us. He, he says I, I, want you to, I want you to live this kind of way so that it will go well with you. 
when we, when we disobey God, when we rebel against God, when we uh, try to take control of our own lives and be sovereign over ourselves, essentially playing the role of, role of God, the Bible calls that sin. And sin separates us from our Father. For some of you, you may be thinking, I've heard this story before, right? It's the most important story. It's a story that we can't afford to get wrong. It's a story that we should regularly preach to ourselves, rightly understanding sort of where, where we fit in the scheme of things, what this is all about, what our lives are really for. It is so easy to be distracted by so many other things, and we forget why we were made in the first place. Scripture says that we were born in God's image. We reflect God's image to the world. We were born with this, this, this dignity, this value as reflecting God's image, and yet we're also born, each of us, as God's enemies. Our sin puts us at odds with God because God says he's God, and our sin says we want to be God. I hate to break it to you. You're not God. That's the bad news. And so already in Scripture, um, from the earliest pages, you see, it's answering these fundamental questions about life. The fundamental questions that all of us are asking, that everyone is asking, that everyone has always asked throughout history. So one of the questions is, where did we come from? The answer is God. And this aching question in our souls of, why are... Why is there such suffering in the world? Why is there such pain? How did things go wrong? We just look around. We, we turn on the TV. We, we turn on the radio. We open our computers or our phone. We open a newspaper, if anybody still reads those, and we realize things are not as they should be, right? And even just looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves, we realize that we, of course, are not as we should be. Where did we come from? We came from God. We have a creator. What went wrong? Sin. It broke apart everything else. Scripture says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What he wants for us as his image bearers is to, is to display the glory of God, the beauty of God, the majesty of God, the complexity of God, the godness of God to the world. But because of our sin, we've fallen short of that. And, and Scripture says, Paul goes on in Romans 6, In the wages of that sin, just as it was for Adam and Eve, is death. And yet, the free gift of God. So we, we earn our death by our sin. But this free gift of God, it's eternal, joyful, abundant life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to be rescued from our sin and reunited with our Creator. In Genesis 3.15, we realize after Adam and Eve had sinned, after Adam and Eve had been, had been cursed, they, they bore the, the, the consequences of their disobedience, that God's speaking to them. And even in that moment, God's giving them hope. And he tells Eve that one day a rescuer will come. One day one of her descendants would be born, and though he would be, he would be wounded by the enemy, ultimately this rescuer would crush Satan himself. And Paul says, God shows his love for us. He shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, God is a God who created us. God pursues us. God forgives us. God saves us. And as, we, as we've said many times before, not because we are good, but why? Because he is good. 
It's a paradigm shift for many of us. Many of us exhaust ourselves trying to earn the approval of the world, of ourselves, of those around us, and we always sort of feel like we haven't measured up. And God says, that's right. That's religion for you. Work, 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 and you're never satisfied. And the gospel is, this is what God has done. This is the news that God has done for you. For by grace, grace, it's on the house. For by grace, we have been saved through faith. Not of ourselves, church. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. you got nothing to boast about. All of Scripture tells us one story. We're, what we're doing here this morning uh, is we're laying a foundation uh, for the theology of our evangelism. As we get into the real practical components of what it means to share our faith, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to, to disciple others, this has to be our foundation. We have to understand what the gospel is and the story that Scripture shares. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is telling this one story. The story of the Old Testament is essentially God's people waiting for a rescuer. And the New Testament, the story of the rescuer's arrival. Genesis tells the story about how we are separated, how we got separated from God. The book of Revelation is about how God will reunite his people with himself to spend eternity in paradise with him. New heaven and new earth. And in the book of Isaiah, this is really interesting, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, we learn that this, this rescuer, the hero himself, will have to suffer and will have to die to save his people. There's a completely foreign idea. It says he was, listen to this, church, listen, listen to this passage, church. He, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The it was uh, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned, every one of us, to our own way. And yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so in that sense, the gospel is different than every other religion because uh, the gospel is the story. It's the good news that God, through suffering, made his way to us for our salvation. Many of you in here have been through our new members class. And one of the things that we do in our new members class is, is talk about the distinction between a Christ-centered gospel and a man-centered religion. Those are very different. They may not feel different at the beginning, but they are fundamentally different. A man-centered religion is essentially all about us. A Christ-centered gospel is all about Jesus. Religion is, as we've said before, what I have to do to get to God. The gospel is a story of what God did to get to me. Religion is what I have to do to be accepted by God. The gospel is what God did to make me acceptable to him. Religion is I must obey so that I can be accepted. The gospel is you have been accepted and so obey. 
This is what we are called to know. We are called to know this gospel story. And we're called to know it, not just in our heads as information, but in our hearts as transformation. This is not just good advice, church. It's good news. This is the gospel. And the gospel is not only news that transforms us, the gospel is news that should compel us out into the world. As we saw in John chapter 20, and really we see this throughout all of Scripture, that God is a sending God. This is God's mission, that he is sending us out. Ed Stetzer wrote this, God is both sender and sent in Christ. God the Father is the source of our mission. He sent his Son who embodies God's mission and accomplishes God's mission. God's mission is then extended and applied through the ministry of the Spirit. For it is the Spirit who calls, the Spirit who equips, the Spirit who empowers the people of God. The word mission uh, comes from the Latin word which literally means to send. To send someone out. That's what the mission is. God's mission was to the Father sent the Son. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit to His people. And then the Father, Son, and Spirit commissioned His people out into all the world. He is ascending God. He says in verse 21 of John 20, peace. He knows that's what we need to hear. He says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. What does he say? Even so I am sending you. We've been sent, church. We've been sent on a mission. We've got a story to tell. We've got news to share. Uh, one theologian puts it this way, that we as God's missionaries are to go from everywhere to everywhere. Jesus says in Matthew 28, this great commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Surprisingly for some as we read that passage, um, the emphasis is not on the going. The going is the assumption, right? So it's, a, it's, it's though, in, in fact, one translator put it this way, um, having gone, disciple all nations, teach all nations. So there is a sense that, um, that we, are, we are, as we are going, as we are living our lives, as, as you are just being you in this world, living where God has put you in your job and with your family and with your friends and with those around you, as you're living your life, Make disciples everywhere you go. It's not about just merely busying ourselves with activity. It's not just about the going. Some of us, of course, are called to go to foreign places, to foreign nations, to other countries, to specific fields, to share the good news in specific ways. But the emphasis here is on, on making disciples, on baptizing and teaching. It's this idea that we are, that we are praying for and working for conversions. That we, are, that we are competent people who are teaching God's word to the masses to obey everything that God has commanded us. This is what it means to evangelize. And the telling here is important. Mark Dever, I read an uh, article several years ago. I thought he had a helpful distinction. He, he has a piece that's called, What Evangelism Is Not. So, so one of the things that evangelism is not, is it's not imposition. 
We're not imposing our views on someone else. That's not what evangelism is. Not on an individual, not on a group of individuals. Evangelizing is not merely our personal testimony. Our personal testimony is part of it, right? Part of our story is the story of God saving us, but that's not, that's not it exclusively. It's about what God did in spite of any part of my story. Evangelism is not merely social action or political involvement. Evangelism is not primarily apologetics. It's not primarily about defending the Bible or defending God. God doesn't need our defense. The Bible simply begins with, there he is. And evangelism is not the result of evangelism. You see? Some of us confuse that. Some of us confuse the, the result or the effects or, or maybe even what we would experience as the success of evangelism as evangelism. Some of us may spend our whole lives sharing the story with very little that we can see to show for it. And yet even Jesus, you remember the, the passage in, in John, I think it's John 6, that even Jesus, as he was sharing, as he was the perfect man, living the perfect story, God himself, knowing everyone's heart, even Jesus had mis, mixed success in sharing this news. It talks about in John 6, as they were hearing this message, as some, some of the disciples heard this message, it was just too much for them, and they walked away. So being faithful to this gospel call is not about being successful in it, we are simply called to know the gospel and that as we go to share this story. One of my favorite quotes about evangelism is from Walter Brueggemann. He says, because there is new life possible in God, silence should be impossible. If this is really true, if God's really saved us, if something's really happened in our souls and in this world, if this news is, as we say, such good news, then we've got to share it. We've got to open our mouths. And we may forget how, how profoundly important the gospel is um, for every person on the planet. Sharing the gospel is not just about um, a simple Bible story. It is that, but it's so much more. When we share the gospel, we are helping people remember who they are. We are reminding people you were, you were created. You were made with a purpose. Your creator knows you. Your creator loves you. These are, this is what we need to hear, right? Our, our, we are a confused people. We are a distracted people. We are, we are a, a scared people. We are an anxious people. We are people confused about who, who we are and what we're supposed to do as a culture. The gospel is a reminder, this is who you are. God made you, God called you, God loves you. It's, it's an answer to this fundamental question. What's the problem with this world? What's the problem with me? Sharing the gospel is, is helping people come to grips with, you know, your greatest problem is not your finances. Your greatest problem is not your relationships. Your, your greatest problem is not your suffering. Your greatest problem is not your pain. Our greatest problem is our sin. Do you see how freeing that gospel message is to every man, woman, and child? It begins to blow away the fog of confusion that this culture speaks to every one of us. And the best news of all is that you are, you are telling the story, the good news, the true story, 
that not only is there a solution to our suffering, but there is a promised hope for an eternity spent with God. That's good news. And sharing the gospel is not about having all the answers. It isn't. It's not, about, it's not about having all the answers. It's about being able to offer this one singular solution, Jesus. Even Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, uh, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, although he clearly had that. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He wanted to remind those people that there was a God who came for them, who loved them, and who died for them. He says, and I was with you, I was with you in weakness, I was with you in fear, and with trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of His power, so that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of any man but only on the power of God. We are called not only to speak of Christ, but also to speak with boldness. With some power, right? As though we believe it. As though we think this is true. As though, as though things matter. As though there's serious consequences to people not knowing, of people hearing this good news. Just like the passage we read in Romans at the beginning of the service. This is an urgent matter. Paul is even asking the church to pray for him in Ephesians and also pray for me, please, that the words uh, may be given to me in opening my mouth, I may proclaim boldly the mystery of the gospel. Which is, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Think about that for a second. Pray that I might proclaim boldly the mystery of the gospel. So a mystery is something you don't quite have your hands around, right? It's something you don't have all the answers to. But he's saying, I want to I proclaim this mystery, this thing like I can't totally, like it's beyond me how the Spirit works and why he saves. And, 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 but, but I'm going to proclaim that truth, that God is our Savior. This is maybe where many of us struggle, right? This is where I struggle. My, my concern for the lost wanes. My, my sin... Uh, overwhelms me and leads me to disobedience. The, my, my, my love for God even drifts among my love for all these other things. And so when I have the opportunity to share, it's easy to shrink back. It's easy to keep my mouth shut. It's easy to forget how urgent this matter is and how, how deeply and profoundly transformative this message is for every soul. Don't you know that everybody you look at is trying to figure out who they are? Don't you know that everybody that you see is trying to come to grips with the suffering that they're experiencing? Don't you know that everyone we see is trying to figure out what their place is in this world? We have good news for those questions. We have hope for those moments of suffering. And God is calling us to preach that message with boldness. We live in a world, this is no surprise for any of us, we live in a world um, where, where tolerance is praised above almost anything else, right? 
but, but it's important for us to understand, tolerance is not love. Tolerance is not, and in fact, in, in many ways, um, it's the opposite of love. It's the opposite of love because I, I, for example, I don't tolerate my children doing foolish or dangerous or dehumanizing things because I love them, right? And yet in our culture of absolute tolerance, where, where tolerance um, is prized above all else, we Christians have almost lost our voice altogether. Because it seems dangerous to say something definitive. It seems dangerous to, to claim something as a truth. And yet this is exactly what we are called to do. As I was preparing this sermon this week, I wrote this prayer uh, for myself and also for um, Redeemer as a church. And I'll, I'll read this to you and we'll say a prayer and um, continue the service. Lord of my body, open my mouth to speak boldly of the one in whom we find our sure way, our anchoring truth, and our forever life for my neighborhood and the nation's. Lord of my soul, open my heart to the bruised and the broken world, to those longing for something lasting, for those panting for purpose, aching for answers, for my neighborhood and the nations. Lord of the feast, open my home to the hungry and hurting souls, to the weary, to the worried, to the wandering. God, for my neighborhood and the nations. My complacency for your urgency. My chilling heart for your burning vision. My cowardice, God, for your clarity. For my neighborhood and the nations. Lord of my faith, Lord of my doubt, open my mouth.